Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where our learned friends in the history community explore the truth of history in the harshest of conditions. The podcast where history fights for its bitter survival in the face of the public narrative. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and very own northern adventurer, Kyle Glover. Hello. Hello, Midlands. Thank you very much. Well, going by our listener stats, you're north to most of the people that are listening here. True. Um, although a big shout out to those even more northerners in Canada over there. And this week, dear ragers, we are taking to the high seas of Lake George of Britain and voyaging to the icy waters of the North Atlantic. Not a Titanic episode quite yet. Do give <laughs> us time. Now, today, guiding us on this voyage of exploration and discovery, we are joined by naval officer, Arctic adventurer and author of No Earthly Pole, Ernest Coleman. Ernest, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much indeed for your invitation. You are welcome, and thank you very much for accepting it as well. Um, so you came to us by recommendation from your publisher, so another shout-out to Amberley Publishing there. Thank you very much. We've got a few more of uh, your colleagues from Amberley coming through uh, in the later weeks. And then I went and looked up a few of your book bios, and that's quite a CV. So could you give us a could you give us a brief talk through your illustrious career and and your adventures? Well, I was towards the end of my naval career and uh, I took over recruiting in Lincolnshire. Now that happens to be where Franklin comes from. And right. uh, I got rather fed up of the REF claiming as everything as REF country and all that. So I wrote a book about Franklin's adventures and decided to see if I could get up there and take a look myself. Right. Uh, and at what stage in the career did you decide that the Arctic Circle was very much where you wanted to go? Oh, <laughs> I, I've been past the Arctic Circle before, uh, and I did it in an aircraft carrier. Right. 
And uh, and so had you retired from the Navy at that point? Uh, no, no. I um, put it to them all trips that it would be a good idea if I could do it. And uh, so we're very obliging. Now, just reading yeah. that book bio there, it's like you've done four expeditions to, yes. to the Franklin yes. site, haven't you? Well, what were they like, uh, apart from cold? Well, they all differed. Uh, the first one, I never even reached the site. I got to the island, but there were terrific difficulties in getting to the far end where the incidents I wanted to see took place. Yeah. So I used that, as if you like, as a kind of search expedition just to get the feel of the, the, the place. The second one was very different. I had a solo expedition. Really? And I managed to get up there and drop the, and I got someone to drop me off at the uh, northeast corner, sorry, northwest corner of the island. And I spent, well, I, I should have spent 10 days alone in, in that part of the world. The only snag is when the plane came in to take me, pull me off, it flew up and it flew down and then it flew away. Now, oh. I'd run out of food, so I had to have um, uh, 16 days without um, food, which was interesting, but I was made for that sort of thing. How on earth do you deal with that, that sort of occurrence? You have to accept it because you know there's absolutely no supply of food whatsoever. I'd used a uh, Royal Connected Mounted Police communication equipment, and that broke down on the first day. <laughs> uh, so I thought, they know I'm here. Uh, the weather wasn't very good at all, and I can imagine the light aeroplane needed to get up there and land on the uh, tundra and all the ice, whichever. They, they, they had to do it safely. And so I you simply, as I said, accept the situation, you get on with it, and... Um, See what just come out of it at the other end. I think it's a very stoic way of dealing with that. I've, I've, I've impressed. Um, now, when is it looking through your naval career? Am I right in that you can claim to be a veteran of HMS Victory? Yes, yes, oh yes, I spent two and a half years in Victory, and I loved every minute of it. And what were you doing? I was, uh, uh, I was called officer of the day. And my job was to keep the plane safe for 24 hours, and, and I then got relieved and then came up for 24 hours again, and, and it was a series like that for the two and a half years. And yeah. it was a very interesting job with the public and uh, fraught with... Um, uh, I, I had a fire on board one day, so it set the alarm rent. <laughs> now, you imagine being in charge of two and a half centuries of valuable uh, naval property that to the alarm's just gone. So I called the fire brigade out only to find out when it went down. It was probably lightning that had started it. And when I got back onto the upper deck, I found the Victoria Reed and that's the aerobicide full of fire brigade uh, the engines. And you, 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 stood, you stood there on what could be a large collection of burning wood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so... Let's, uh, let's 
move on now to what you've come here to talk about, both your book and your rage. So we'll dive in with our regular rage question, Ernest. We would be honoured and privileged if you would tell us what you wish people would just stop believing. They must stop believing that Franklin's people, the, 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 uh, his ship's companies and his men, uh, indulged in cannibalism. There is not a shred of evidence. There are other things that people have claimed to be evidence, but it, it isn't. And it's utter nonsense, and it reflects badly upon um, good people who put the time in to see if they could help us. Well phrased, sir. Well phrased. Right, yes. Now, we, I will confess, we are both newcomers to both the Navy and the Franklin Expedition. So, Kyle, if you want to uh, start the ball rolling with our first question. Would you be able to give us a quick history lesson of the Franklin Expedition? Who was Franklin? Yes. What was he trying to achieve? Yes, absolutely. The more it ended, there's a lot of uh, unemployed ships. So they thought, the Admiralty thought, I'll tell you what, the one uh, job we can do for humanity is discover the Northwest Passage. That's taking it a toss across the top of America. Uh, every previous edition uh, or expedition had failed. So consequently, um, Franklin was sent for because he had a lot of polar experience. Asked if he would take two ships up into the Arctic and to see if he could get them through. Of course, he leapt at it. And uh, he was the right man for the right job. No question about that. So who was he? Um, you know, what was his, back his background? How long had he served? Yeah, he, he was um, a very popular captain. He didn't believe in um, flogging men. He believed in leadership. He believed in honesty, which went, everything went wrong for him when he was made lieutenant governor of Tasmania, when he had to work with some civilians, and should we say were less than honest, and... Uh, he decided he had enough of that. He couldn't um, take it anymore, and he wasn't going to mess around with these people. And he left. He's been he'd been to the Antarctic. He'd been to the Arctic overland uh, twice, and uh, a well-known navigator, a secure man, and as I said, a popular and a leader. Because he takes, as I understand it, the, the two ships he's leading are HMS Terror and HMS Erebus. Is, have I pronounced those That's right? That's it. Yeah, yeah. And so were, were those ships, you know, his whole career or, you know, had he served elsewhere? Where would his naval experience, military experience, taken him? Yeah. Now, he, he did, he'd have several ships. And uh, one of them, he, he was so popular that it was known as Franklin's Paradise. <laughs> mainly on the grounds that uh, he didn't flog people doing things wrong. He had a stiff word with them and uh, kept them on board. And it, it all went very, very well. But the two ships, Erebus and Terror, had a, a quite a long polar experience. They'd been to the Antarctic as well as uh, the Arctic. And uh, people knew that there were sound and ships, they had a few alterations. They, they changed the shape of the mizzenmast to give themselves more storerooms. 
they put in a a um, a light railway engine taken from uh, somewhere in London that uh, they could use as a propeller. Fair. It's all fairly new stuff, but mm-hmm. they were, um, you know, trying to 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 do something like ice. If you haven't got wind, your sails aren't a great deal of of good. So they they took these modern uh, changes and to to try to apply them. Yeah, a, a good ship, good good crew, and good captain, and the latest technology. Absolutely, yeah. Um, everybody was a volunteer on board, so nobody's there against their will. They all knew what they were getting into. Yes, and they also got uh, paid a half, which was which was to the very popular. Oh, that'll go so down well with any military man, won't ex- it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, what sort of period are we looking at here? Then you mentioned the Crimean War. Then, so when does this expedition take place? Yeah, they started in eighteen forty-five in May. And sailed across the Atlantic uh, to Greenland and then up the Navy Straits, entered uh, Arctic waters. They um, then had a a winter uh, in the Arctic and looked for a passage going south. Mm. Well, they came across one, thought, this is it, this is the one. And they went down there, and unfortunately, they reached a, pl- a place called uh, Victoria Strait. The top of the Victoria Strait was ice. Yeah. Now, they're not going to complain about ice because they do know that ice is in the Arctic, and they are you know, pre- fully prepared for that. So they that's where they got to when the problem started. Okay. And mentioned they're looking for the Northwest Passage, so that's... Is that that's the route across the American continent, uh, the North End? So is that that you're looking at that point to sail to Russia and Japan? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, everywhere across the Pacific. Yeah, that... was was felt to be important. Yeah. yeah, without without having to go all the way around South America and then back up the, the west coast. That's of the absolutely States. right. Yeah. yeah. Or go eastwards, which is equally long. Yeah. Yes, right. So that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you you mentioned then that they they got about they they got about that far. So so what what happened then? Well, that was eighteen forty six. Now they could have expected to spend the winter up there. Then the ice uh, would would melt. They would come down Victoria Strait. Uh, meet up with the Beaufort Sea and go through the Northwest Passage. That was it. Quite simple. They'd done a lot of hard work. It was just waiting for the ice to melt. Seven. Unfortunately, in 1846, the ice didn't melt in 1847, in the summer. Uh, they were stuck there for another year. Whoa. And they did a lot of work, we know that. They they went ashore, they did surveys, and they did various things like that, but they couldn't move the two ships. They were stuck together. And then, in 1848, in April, the ship's company would have been suffering from scurvy. They would need to be rescued. The ships were possibly being crushed 
uh, you know, you can hear the creaking from the sides. Look at the Shackleton ship in this right. time. Uh, there's the sank. And nobody wants that because if they went down together, they'd all die. So the thing to do was to make an orderly procession overland down south uh, to as far as they could go in the hope of meeting up with someone from the Hudson Bay Company, Hudson Bay Fort, or something along those lines. And you mentioned this has gone from like 1845 to 1848. How long were they actually yes. planning this voyage to be for? Well, they, they, they expected to be there one winter, and they prepared for one winter. And, of course, they, they'd got to the top of Victoria Strait, where they got stuck in, at the start of the winter of 1847, and should have passed through it without any difficulty. Um, but it does happen. Yeah. Okay, so you've mentioned at the start of this rage, then we're talking, we're talking cannibalism. So, so from that getting stuck, what are then the circumstances, how do things deteriorate that leads to this supposed incident and then the supposed claim? Okay, I'll do the first part of that story because there is a sort of intermission, but uh, I'll, I'll, um, they were leaving the ships. Many, quite clearly, were suffering from scurvy. Yep. And scurvy, the problem with that is that the more effort you put in, the, the more quick, quickly it spreads until you get to a situation where you can't even eat. Never mind the else. Your gums are swollen. In a terrible condition. So really, the quicker they could move, the better. But they were losing men along the way, all the way down. 105 men came ashore at a place called uh, Back Bay and uh, set off. They were dragging boats, and these are heavy ship's boats. They were on 35-foot oak sledges to get them over the ground. And... Uh, uh, it was an appalling thing to have to do. And when they got to Erebus Bay, which is in the southwest corner of the island, uh, we don't quite know how many were still surviving then, but clearly they couldn't pull any further. So if you imagine a First World War casualty clearing station, what they decided was that those who could go down further would be left uh, with the boats and in the hope that, well, by summer, the following summer, the ice would melt. No forget they were a little more south than the ship, so that up and help. Yeah. They could uh, get in the boats and make their way across to America and uh, down the Back River, as it's called. So the, uh, the, so the part... Of them stayed, part of them went off, and were never heard of again. But the men who were there, they had at least one boat, and they had the officers in charge, they had people to look after them, and expect, fully expected to either die of exposure, die of lack of food, or be picked up. Yeah. Okay, so that's part one. Yeah. Where do we then get to doing part two? So what uh, we need to go to now is something several years earlier. 
a one of the Franklin search ships was called uh, the Plover, and it uh, sailed into the Arctic and dropped off two officers and a few men to keep a link back with home via the Hudson Bay Company. Now, they made their way across to this fort and were met by an Orkney man called Dr. John uh, Ray. Now, he was not keen on uh, the Navy just appearing out of nowhere and... uh, Saying that uh, he was right to pick up some stores and uh, that, that. In fact, they couldn't go back, so they'd have to stay there a while. And he was talking to the second in command, a chap called Hooper, who said that uh, he, he was having such an interesting time, he was thinking of writing a book about it. And could he please uh, tell him, this is to Ray, tell him that. They, um, uh, his, some of his team had indulged in cannibalism. Well, that was a true story, but Ray had kept quiet about it, and he lost his, well, lost his temper, <laughs> should we say, and turned on the naval people. I've got here a quote. It said, um, these people have a peculiar abruptness of manner of which tone, which is not over agreeable to us, are half-savages in the north. And uh, he called them self-sufficient donkeys. Right. These were the reports he, he said back. He, he developed practically a pathological hate for them and the Navy. And that, in fact, the book never got written, and it was all um, nonsense. So... Uh, Pullen and uh, Hoover, Hoover, they went back to the ships, Dean all got on it and carried on. But Ray looked for an opportunity. Yeah. And the opportunity came when he had to head up, he decided to result to head up north because he believed uh, he'd found the Northwest Passage. Well, in fact, he hasn't. Uh, and there's still dots on the map where he hasn't done it. But anyway, that was his gesture that he wanted to, to go there. Well, he made his way there with uh, some of the, what in those days were called Eskimos, which are called Inuit nowadays. Mm-hmm. And they went up uh, close to the island, and he claimed then that he had met uh, a group of Eskimos, and... Uh, they told him a shocking, absolutely shocking story. He got this story, he came back to England at the first opportunity, and he wrote straight to the Times, and the Times published the next day this particular letter. And I just uh, read a little bit from it, if I may. Yep. Yeah. I have the honour to mention with information my Lord's Commissioners at the Admiralty that during my journey over the ice and snows this spring, with a view to completing the survey of the west shore of Boothia, I met with Eskimo in Pelly Bay. Then he goes on to describe um, their meeting, and he says, John Franklin's long-lost party, beyond a doubt, 
a fate as terrible as the imagination might conceive. Now, that's a, a pretty good start that was published in the Times that nobody else has seen. And then he goes on to say, um, from the mutilated state, many corpses that had been seen by the Eskimos and the contents of the kettles, that's cooking yep. instruments, it is evident that our wretched countrymen had been driven to the last resource, cannibalism, as a means of prolonging existence. Well, the shock was extraordinary. Everybody, from Charles Dickens downwards and across, and said, rubbish, I'm saying nonsense. This wouldn't happen. This, first he said they were Englishmen, quite, that's all right. Uh-huh. And then uh, the naval side joined in and said, this is utterly ridiculous. You have to take from there, then go back. Because Ray had that problem with cannibalism himself that he desperately tried to keep quiet. Yep. And then, at the time he moved up uh, to the area with the Eskimos, there was the famous Donna cattle train incident. Yes. Where <laughs> a wagon train crossed America uh, but got caught in the snow. Yeah. And they resorted to cannibalism. And the worldwide spreads of that news had come prompted Ray to feed the Eskimos with this um, information so that uh, they would all say that, uh, yes, that's what actually happened. In fact, he got across this, this to them, but they told him that he was within two days' march of where the incident happened, where the corpses were, where the skeletons were, and everything. Guess what? He didn't even bother. <laughs> this was nice. a man. Who, yeah, this is a man who claimed to have walked over six thousand miles through the Arctic. Well, this was a two-day hike across. Easily could be done. Well, in fact, I've done it. Uh, so, <laughs> give you some idea. Yeah, and um, of course he. He didn't go, he got back, because would you believe there was a reward for finding a Franklin, and he claimed to find the Franklin. And also he even claimed to have discovered the Northwest Passage, which he plainly hasn't, because, again, he didn't get to um, the part he was looking for to finish his uh, studies on that. So he's not a very popular person, as you can imagine. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
So is is that the only evidence? Is that how people know this is nonsense? It's just this one story that's mixed the Donner Party with the Franklin expedition? Well, it was totally refuted at the time. Yeah. Everybody turned it down. But then, you can't believe this, but it's true, a party of Canadians went up to uh, look at the area. But this was when I, um, what, what, what do you were thinking about? Probably the 80s, 1980s. And they triggered off, uh, they, they dug up uh, two bodies that uh, would, had been buried by Franklin on their first winter, not the one that was in the south, but it was the first winter. And uh, it was a bit shocking, really, because uh, they they were frozen solid yeah. and they'd hardly changed from the day they'd put them in there. And it's, it's, it's a little unnerving because I was at the National Maritime Museum and I met the descendant of one of those bodies. And this elderly man had the same eyes as the uh, the, the, the frozen one. Yes. So, uh, to, and then so he came out with uh, a new theory. It was utterly pathetic theory, but it was a new one. And this was the lead poisoning theory. Now, we can deal with that later, if you yes, like. I will, yes, I will come to that uh, in uh, in a yes, question yes, or so yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, when they were found, they then an expedition went to look at Erebus Bay, and that's where the uh, unfit ones, the ones that were scurvied and, and, and that sort of thing, had been left. And so, sure enough, there uh, were bones then, there was even remains of a boat uh, still there. And the boat is interesting because it had two skeletons in, each skeleton accompanied by a shotgun with a cartridge up it. So they were doing that for a reason, and I can see why. Because the skeletons had a lot of what they call cut marks. Now, they got all very excited the, uh, there, and they, for some reason, assumed that was cannibalism. In fact, the, the cut marks were always at right angles. This was somebody chopping at them. You don't really chop, and it was uh, more evidence when I talked to uh, other people. I went to the... Um, where there was a battle in York, medieval battle, where they'd got similar bones. Yes. Again, they they were chopped, you know, and, and, and that. Whereas in a cannibal, he doesn't chop his bones, he slices off them, apparently. Okay, I was saying, <laughs> yes. It seemed to speak with <laughs> yeah. some authority <laughs> there, Ernest. Yes. There, there, so are the archaeological, there are archaeological remains of cannibalism victims, and as you say, they are uh, they are but, butchered and sliced rather than hacked at. Indeed. Yes. And all these were hacked, and also that the bodies themselves had been attacked. They, the, all the limbs were broken, uh, the face were broken, so 
Now then, there's a reason for this. You don't do this in cannibalism, but who does do it? It just turns out that the Eskimo people in that area were called the Netzelik. Now, the Netzelik, oh, by the way, I ought to say that I am saying this with permission because I had a very exciting moment in Yellowknife in the library. I was doing some research there when uh, an Eskimo woman came in and came up to me and said, are you Royal Navy? And I said, yes. She said, oh, my people killed your people. <laughs> well, I nearly fell off the stool. Right. And I said, why, why, why don't you, you know, why did one you admit it? And she said, oh, no, 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 no. You can't do that. Uh, the elders won't allow it. And as a result, if I tried, if I, I was seen to be the one spreading it, it would, uh, I'd be thrown out of the tribe. And it was a serious business. That would actually happen. Uh, so, the Netsalik already were known to be the most aggressive tribe in the area by far. And uh, there are articles, the academic papers written saying that that you can record where the other tribes were who were driven back uh, by the Netzlik. And all of King William Island, all of the Boothia Peninsula up on the eastern side were denuded of other tribes and it was all taken over by the Netzlik. But when I put forward the possibility of cannibalism, which the Netzlik did indulge in, I was told, oh, no, 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 they couldn't be them because they were Stone Age people. And they were very serious about this, particularly the Canadian you know, academics and polar experts. They said they're Stone Age people. They only use slate and everything for arrows and, and nearest thing to knives. What they'd forgotten was that Sir James Ross, in the 1830s, had come into the area of the Letzlik with a ship called the Victory, and they abandoned it. They'd left it, they'd left it, uh, right smack in the middle of Netzelic territory. So suddenly, from being a Stone Age people, they'd got a huge mine of metal. Yeah. And I proved this by putting um, in the book a picture drawn of Netzelic tools and day-to-day stuff, many of which were made of metal. Yet the Canadian experts try to ignore this. So they did have metal. They were, I believe, so aggressive that they would have seen Franklin's people. Don't forget, 105 men started off. You would have seen those as we say, a source of stuff. They haven't got more metal, clothing, all sorts of things. Shotguns, for example? Well, guns in there. The sh- I reckon if I'd been in charge of that lot, I'd have said, right, line up, men. I want two over in the boat. Guard that at all, th- all things, uh, uh, whatever happens. Guard that boat, because that's going to be our life saver if we can get through this. Send them two there. Now, they have shotguns. We, the rest may have had shotguns. But you're outnumbered by a very large 
people, many of them were very, very ill, yeah. the, the naval people, and it was a massacre. Then what the uh, Eskimo did, they always smash up the body, is the best as you can think of it. They disfigure it and everything. That explains why the skulls, the um, bones, the legs, all the long bones, are all broken. Nothing to do with getting up the, uh, the uh, stuff inside the boat, what they call it. The marrow. Marrow, yes, yes. That's often used as a vaccine. Oh, they were trying to get at the marrow. No, they didn't. And they, they just call it mayhem. The two in the boat, I think, fired at them because one of the bones they tend to set of bones they forget about is a young Eskimo. Twelve years old there, they reckon he was. And don't forget for an Eskimo, a twelve-year-old's a young man. Uh, so there have been tribe raiders come up with an excuse why he's there. And they even said at one stage, oh, it was a young member of Franklin's ship company. Well, the youngest was 18 when they left, not 12, to be years later. These are the sort of things you can uh, put forward as being, saying that it's nonsense cannibalism. Also, my favourite uh, clue, though, is in the boat with the two men and the um, shotguns was 40 pounds of chocolate. Now, who is starving? Who is starving to, to a degree where he, um, rather than eat the chocolate, he can make? <laughs> well, that, I'll tell you something. That entirely depends on the chocolate. Yeah. If that was American Hershey bars, I'd be eating <laughs> Kyle. True. Yeah, interesting point. He would eat the chocolate yeah. before you resort to cannibalism under yeah. any other circumstance. So yes. He, he, he tells me that the, the food that remained was rationed out because that's clearly part of rations that was kept in the boat and looked after uh, for when they were going to go south. Mm-hmm. Um, weren't, I mean, we've got that party that was left behind there that we, you know, except there was killed by the tribe. Were there any? Yes. Were there no survivors of this expedition at all? Uh, not one. Not one. Uh, because there is a uh, a story, if you like, going around that uh, the rest reached another bay a bit further to the um, east and south, where more bones were found. Well, that may be possible, but there's no evidence of it now. At least, nothing that uh, I've heard. They may have reached the river, Bucks uh, River, which would have taken them south, but they were still in Netsalik territory. Now, which sounds like they guard that particularly fiercely as well. Yes. Yeah. So, you mentioned, uh, you painted a little earlier on, you mentioned in the book, the lead poisoning tripe, uh, which is an intriguing phrase, so... Uh, what can you tell us about that and other myths well, that have grown well, up around the Franklin expedition? Quite a lot. These were mid-19th century sailors. They come from a country where the water supply comes through lead pipes. Uh, they are on board ships where they eat off pewter plates. It's called uh, the lead mm-hmm. paste. The pipes yeah. on the ship and the water tanks were lead. Uh, so lead, I thought, was probably high. 
But in fact, I found that not to be the case. What Bolton found was that there's another uh, some kits in the West Indies is a naval graveyard and uh, in English Harbour, as it's called. Now, that, that, that area was dug up. Well, now it's about, well, I suppose, 20, 15 or 20 years ago. And they found there the remains of lots of sailors who had died for different sort of reasons on the ships, and they were buried there. All 19th centuries, mid-19th century and so on. They got the same amount of uh, dented in their teeth as those up on King William Island. It wasn't a, uh, a special uh, evidence of uh, lead poisoning at all. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you would find that any sailor after three winters is just dying of lead poisoning anywhere. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So it's about time that was put to bed. But unfortunately, it's one of these things that stuck. Damn. And uh, I, I, I couldn't have got on about that. But to me, the cannibalism was more important because it, it was accused. Yes. The men accused were British sailors. And even people like uh, Darwin actually studied the history of the Royal Navy and to find any other examples of cannibalism. And all he found yeah. out was one um, one uh, ship that sank and the people at, at a midshipman's dog. Right. I've, I, now, you see, for me, that harms the reputation of the Navy wow. way more than cannibalism was done. Now, I'm very much a dog loyalist here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. I know shopping <laughs> yeah. stuff, but there we go. Yeah, so... Cannibalism isn't the. It's obviously not the done thing, but it's it's not what well, the British Royal Navy does, even in the direst of circumstances. Well, I did thirty six years and yes. never got offered a leg or anything. About <laughs> the whole time Thank you very much for that, Ernest, because that's that, that's put a fair few things definitely on me uh, on the map for me. Um, that that's been an eye opener because I started off like you said. You said earlier on, you know, coming come into history rage virginly. I'd come into this because I was aware of the ships and I was I, I was aware of their names, but I'd got no idea what happened. And in fact, I'd got more idea of what happened to the Donner Party than I had the Franklin expedition. So, <laughs> so thank yeah. you very much for that. And uh, I, I will confess, I haven't read the book in its entirety yet, but it is it, it is on the list. Um, the the intro That's that outrageous. I read through. <laughs> how dare, how dare uh, you, intro, Paul? But the intro <laughs> that I read through was just so well done. It was... Yeah, that is it. The puzzle that I read, I started... Well, it makes a good doorstop. <laughs> how we've got... We, there's some books in our catalogue that will make good gravestones. <laughs> um, but yeah, what I liked is it's written in a really, really refreshing, non-academic, really kind of easy-to-read-and-follow style. And it, it it is it's that part travel log and part history book. Well, I can very that, much. That I really enjoyed about I'm it. Delighted. So, yeah, you you are welcome, and I'll be recommending it to everybody else, even though I haven't completed it yet. So, but thank you very much for thank you very much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to know more about Ernest's work, then you can and should start with the excellent book No Earthly Pole, and then you can work on the back catalogue of other books uh, and works, and we will have links to those in the show notes as well. And for all of you out there, even you, even our listeners in Canada, please stop it with the cannibalism bit. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Lavell. And I am at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this, then, then why not join the angry mob on Patreon? Because this way we don't starve to death. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, enter into all of our prize draws, the invitable questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But from all of us, until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.